everyone. Welcome back to the Wisdom Collective. How you doing, TK? Man, I'm so good. It's good to be here, brother. Good, good. Well, I want to introduce you guys to TK Coleman. We connected up um, over Twitter, honestly. Um, but you, you were saying some really interesting things. And then I found out um, you were more than just like one tweet. Your guy is doing a lot of different things, you know. So I wanted to connect up with you um, on the one hand, uh, primarily because you're a nuanced thinker, but then you're also doing so much to mobilize and equip people to just be, maybe we might say more fully human. And so um, anyway, um, I want to talk to you about all of that and uh, what's going on in culture right now and so much. But before we jump in, let's, uh, let's hear about you. What are you up to? Um, what have you been doing for work? What should people know about you? Yeah, man. Well, well to be described as someone who, who turned out to be more than one tweet, might be the biggest compliment somebody could pay because uh, <laughs> I, I strive to be bigger than my bio. Yeah, I, I strive okay. to be more than what I can share online. Um, not by limiting what I share online, but by, but by continually expanding who I am in the offline world. And mm -hmm. I, th I think in this world where there's so much pressure to be constantly updating people about the latest thing we read, the latest thing we thought, the latest thing we ate, it's so important to be part of a process that's, that's bigger and more dynamic than, than our ability to update the world you know, with where we're at. And so that's, that, that's very important to me. So I appreciate that. Uh, who I am, man, I mean, I, I guess we're going to find out more al along the way. But um, my name is TK Coleman. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I'm the son of a pastor, grew up in the church. And um, I have a deep and abiding you know, uh, faith. Um, and you know, uh, Christian spirituality informs everything that I do, everything that I am. And that, that doesn't mean it has been a linear path. I, I, I think most, most people who describe themselves as believers, uh, they have a unique journey. Uh, even, even those of us who grew up in the church, we, we have a journey of, of uh, sort of losing our way, finding our way, recovering, remembering the truth, you know, kind of like the Jonah journey, running from the truth and then finding yourself in your own version of the belly of the well, where you, you come to hear the voice of God in the way that you needed to hear it so that you can live your life on purpose. But I guess if there's anything I want people to know about me, it's that uh, I, I, I believe that more important than anything else, uh, every human being is created for a purpose. And the greatest reward, the greatest joy, the greatest source of meaning in life is to devote yourself to the discovery of what that is. Um, hmm. and, and to do that, because... Um, even though suffering is a part of life and challenges are a part of life, having a sense of purpose is what contextualizes the suffering and gives meaning to it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that's my biggest conviction. And, and that's a message that I try to take with me everywhere I go. Uh, professionally, the outlet through which I embody that is um, I'm a director of entrepreneurial education at FEE. Uh, that stands for the Foundation for Economic, Economic Education. It's the uh, oldest free market think tank in the country, 75 years and uh, a lot of what we do is we, we popularize um, entrepreneurial thinking and economic literacy to high school and college students and, you know, try to do our part in, in helping people live freer lives by giving them, you know, better ideas. So that's yeah. what I'm about. Man, you guys are, like you said, you're an old organization, but there's a reason why you're still around. Like there is a, a massive need for, well, both things. I mean, your, your interest and in how you um, work that into your work, so to speak, with the idea of like helping folks find their purpose. Um, and I love how you put that. It contextualizes suffering, difficulty, strife. It gives it, uh, yeah, it's, it's no longer arbitrary. It's a, it's a part of the journey, so to speak. Um, so I love all that, but I, you guys are, so I feel like you're, you're helping 
and a lot of who you are answer what might be called the meaning crisis. There's a, a number of folks talking about that idea. There's just a, a lack of meaning for so many people's lives, especially young adults right now, like a, a soft and, and at times an unclear version of nihilism is really strong in our youth right now, um, young adults in particular, but then some of our people younger than them. Anyway, dude, that's awesome. And then it's so cool you're doing the financial stuff too, because uh, yeah, some of the courses I took in college that were more on like practical finance, I was like, this is so silly. This should be required stuff, man. Like you should, you should not be able to go out in the world and do a lot of the things I can do right now, like getting loans and all the rest. And so many of the things um, without some level of like training and, and having a network of people to do that. Cause you do that too, right? You're networking people and connecting them. And, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny, by the way, what you mentioned about money is money is one of those things that kind of gets uh, lumped into this category of, Focus on the right stuff, and money isn't one of those things. Focus on the right stuff, which is usually something other than money. And then the money that part personal will personal fulfillment thing, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then the money part will take care of itself. And imagine if we treated anything else like that. Let's just take hygiene. Imagine mm -hmm. if we said focus on you know the right stuff, doing what you love, and and, and being happy, <laughs> and, and and the hygiene will take care of itself. The harsh reality is, no, it won't. Hygiene yeah. is not the most important thing. It's not the only thing. Hygiene isn't everything. You can be the most hygienic person in the world, still be miserable, still have a terrible life. But hygiene is the sort of thing that you have to deliberately do. You right, have to right. make a conscious effort to prioritize it, even when it's boring, even though it's not everything, or else your life will literally stink. And it's, <laughs> it, it's the same way with money. Money is actually not the sort of thing that will take care of itself. It's the sort of thing that you take care of by learning the principles of stewardship that lead to uh, financial independence, fiscal responsibility, financial freedom, abundance, and things along those lines. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I try to work against this mentality of treating any of the important things in life as if they take care of themselves. If, if anything is important, even if it's not everything, uh, you want to approach it with a purpose-driven mindset, you know? Yeah, intentionality. And, and I want to get into a lot of that. Um... Because, yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there with what you are doing and trying to do with helping uh, young folks. And, and we talked before, even just uh, folks within the black community in particular with all of that. So um, I want to get into that. But before we do that, let's let's talk culture a bit. That's a, that's a way that we sort of connected in the first place. You have some interesting and some nuanced thoughts about um, so many things. And so I want to try and unpack some of that before we talk about how can we sort that out practically and equipping people and empowering them in a lot of the ways that you are. So. Let's let's assess culture, shall we? Sound good? Let's do it, man. I got my bulletproof coffee, so yes, I'm ready. <laughs> you're, you're prepared. That's good, man. Well, hey, uh, I'll I'll throw the first thing out there. I think the first thing I heard uh, you say and talk about was something like you were differentiating between. There's this in this conversation I've been having with a lot of different thinkers inside the church, outside the church, um, and journalists and, and artists and other people about this concept that's really been popularized now called cancel culture, right? Um, it's on the one hand, it's a legitimate phenomenon in a lot of ways. Um, but it's also like a talking point as well. Um, some people use it as like, oh, that's overblown. That's a right wing talking point. They politicize it or whatever. Um, and then right wing types will use it to, uh, or those that lean right, uh, even will oftentimes use it to easily dismiss any negative noise that comes at them. Um, but a lot of that's kind of a, I guess the simplest way to put it is kind of a stupid game to play. Uh, <laughs> to get in the fight about is it real? How real is it? Like, uh, 
anyway, you, you approached it a little bit differently. What I appreciated, you had this idea of compassion culture over cancel culture. Do you want to unpack that or kind of explain what you're trying to get at with that idea and maybe give your take, like what's going on? What cancel culture is real, but then what do we do about it? Right? Yeah. Well, I think about the words of Solomon about there being nothing new under the sun. When I think about cancel culture, um, as with most things that we, we worry about, the details may differ. Um, you know, the particulars may vary for our time, but, it, but it's, it's really an ancient phenomenon. Cancel mm -hmm. culture has been around for a very long time. Uh, what were the Pharisees trying to do when they brought the adulteress to, to, to Jesus and says, this woman was, in, was, was caught committing adultery in the very act? How about that, right? What were you mm -hmm. guys doing? Um, and, and they bring to Jesus and, and, and they, they say, the law says she must be stoned. Right. What were they seeking other than an opportunity to cancel her? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, when Jesus wrote, you know, his his message in the sand and, and they saw that and then he posed that question to them. Let he who was without sin cast the first stone. You know, we, we saw a different kind of reaction. Right. Um, or, you know, when when they brought the the man who was was, um, you know, had an infirmity to Jesus and they said, hey, uh, it's the Sabbath. You know, and, and the rule of the Sabbath is that you're not supposed to do any work, but it looks like this guy needs some work done on him. Um, th they were looking to cancel Jesus. Right. They, they were deliberately putting him in a situation so that no matter how he answered the question, they would be able to use his own words against him. They would be able to twist his words, right, so that they could essentially destroy his credibility. So we have it with the person that was caught in sin and a person that was committed to righteousness, and yet both people, they sought to cancel them. And, and that's, that's been true all throughout the scripture. I'll, I'll give another example before we get into this. You take in the book of Daniel, how uh, you know, Daniel was faithful and, and, and the king loved him. And there was someone that was jealous of Daniel, right? And so he goes to the king and says, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had this law, you know, where everyone had to bow down, you know, to this, you know, monument and so forth. And, the person who's making this suggestion, oh, I mean, he's doing it like a classic politician, right? Like, I'm just, oh, yeah. I'm just advocating for a law that would be good for society in general. But in his heart of hearts, he knew that this would be a law that would criminalize Daniel's already existing behavior, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. and the king, not being aware of that intention, says, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good, harmless idea. By the way, I think that's how most people think about politics. You know, most people don't make the distinction between the seen and the unseen. Most of the thinking is done at the level of intention. And there are a few powerful people who know what the, what the consequences and negative externalities are. And they're the ones that control the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they get, they get sincere, well-intended people to kind of buy in because it's like, hey, that, that sounds pretty harmless. And, and the king allowed for that edict to be passed. And the predictable outcome was Daniel violated the law. And, 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 and when the king was presented with this, he's like, oh, no, I love Daniel, but, but, but I can't go against my own word. Mm -hmm. I've got to put him in that lion's den. And, 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 and he prayed, you know, like, like, Daniel, I hope your God is with you. I hope your God is with you. And, and, and the message of the scriptures all throughout, and, and, and even in that story is that, we were never promised to live in a world where we'd never be tossed into the lion's den, mm -hmm. right? But, but the God that we serve is one who is powerful enough to remove the sting of death from the mouth of the lion, from the mouth of the adversary in all of its forms at all times. 
we serve a God who, who challenges death with that, with that New Testament rhetoric, where is thy sting? Oh, yeah. Where is thy sting? Right? So every person who has tried to do the right thing, there have been attempts made to cancel them. And people who do the wrong thing, there are, there are people that are all too happy to cancel them. And so cancel culture is nothing new. And however we respond to it, I simply don't entertain the option of responding to cancel culture with a victim mindset based on fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't believe that it's becoming of the Christian to, to believe in a, in, a, in a book, right, where, you know, uh, Moses was conspired against, you know, where, where Herod said, I want so bad to make sure this, this Messiah who's being prophesied is killed, that I'm going to pass an edict so that all the babies get killed, right? Like, you know, Moses leading the children of Israel across the Red Sea, and Pharaoh is, is pursuing them, and God says, you know what? What I said is going to come to pass. I'm parting the Red Sea. Daniel being saved from the lion's den, the three Hebrew boys being saved from the fiery furnace, and then we got to 2020, and cancel culture came, and God didn't have an answer for that. <laughs> right, right, we right. got to 2020 and cancel culture came and then all the good people were stripped of their power because of some loud angry people on twitter who wanted to use something they tweeted about 10 years ago again like really mm-hmm. is, is is that truly what we're afraid of like to me to bow down at the god of cancel culture no matter how real it may be and and, and to approach it with a sense of fear or to carry ourselves like, oh, I can't say what I really believe. I can't speak truth because of cancel culture. When has the truth ever been without enemies? Yeah, for sure. When has the truth ever been non-threatening? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not if you're not stepping on any toes, you're not saying anything interesting. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Truth is to encroach upon the kingdom of hell. So cancel culture is nothing new. I know I haven't even answered your question, but I think that's the important context within which I want to have this conversation. One where there is a an intrinsically, explicitly Christian presupposition that cancel culture must be discussed from a non-victim mindset. It must be discussed with an attitude of boldness, with an attitude of courage, saying that you know if 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 we're not to be scared of Pharaoh and, and the fiery furnace and the lion's den and the edict of Herod, why, why is it that this is going to be the thing yeah. that, that defeats the will of God? The important thing, the thing to be afraid of, if we're going to be afraid of anything, is to be afraid of being on the wrong side of God's will, the sure. wrong side of truth. Okay, let's get to your question. No, no, this is really good, man. You're talking like, so yeah, I mean, there is like, it's a great distinction to make TK that that cancel culture is real. I mean, we could just say objectively, it's factually true. Like there are people, and and I love the way you put it, because this is something that actually a conversation I was having with someone from outside the church, a journalist, she was saying, I don't think cancel, she was saying the exact same thing you are, like cancel culture is not a new phenomenon. And then she was asking because she wasn't raised in the church and doesn't have a lot of experience there. She's like, I got to think it's happening in the church a lot too, at least from stories I hear it's happened like in church history and in religious history. Right. And, and you're getting at a lot of that. Right. Um, it is a thing that's happened um, through self-righteousness or kind of being on the wrong side of truth or convenience. There's a million reasons, but anyway, I, I just want to make a point that you're acknowledging that it is true that it exists, but then how we moralize it or how we interact with it, it, it can be completely uh, drastically different, you know? And so if we come at it with that victim mentality, like you're talking about, um, yeah, how we moralize it and how we treat it will be completely different than if we have that 
that cruciform mentality, honestly, that, that mentality that's willing to like uh, walk through it. And you got after that idea of like the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's not like hell coming against the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God, like coming against like, the gates of hell. You know what I mean? It's the, it's yeah. the other way around. And so anyway, you're getting into a lot of good stuff. Let's, let's, let's move toward like the alternative or the antithesis and this compassion culture idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the statement I made is that the world is a cancel culture the church is a compassion culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this is important. You know, Psalms 1 and 1 says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And, and counsel there refers to advice, wisdom, worldview, paradigm, way of seeing reality, way of living. And uh, we, we are told that we will be blessed when our worldview, our way of treating one another, our way of prioritizing what's, you know, what we pursue, when, when, when that is informed, by, by, by the Christian tradition, and it's not grounded in the reactionary, ever-fluctuating ways of the world, right? Sure. And, and so in cancel culture, that worldview is one where it's eat or be eaten. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the concept of abundance and success in the world is based on the, the notion of the universe as a closed system. There's a finite amount of wealth. There's a finite amount of goodness there's a finite amount of joy or whatever it may be that's worth seeking. And the way that we come to comp- uh, have a good life is we compete with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one pie, there's only so many pieces of the pie and your wealth means my poverty, your success means my failure. And so I gotta beat you in order to be successful. It's a zero sum game. Sum. Yeah, for sure. And in a zero sum game, if I see an opportunity to bring you down, I gotta bring you down, man. If I see an opportunity to stab you in the back or make you look look terrible, better you than me, bro, right? That That's the way of the world. And, and it makes sense when you understand their fundamental logic about where mm-hmm. success and happiness comes from. But in the Christian worldview, this universe is an open system. There is a source of energy and life and wellness and joy that is constantly feeding into this system and sustaining this system. And we do not attain success by competing with other people over what already exists, but by creating that which has not yet been. You know, um, when the Bible says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, like, think about what that means. You know, a conqueror is someone who who dominates existing territory, right? A a, a conqueror is someone who says, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to crush everybody I'm going to bring them under subjection and I'm going to take over and I'm going to be the ruler. And that's the system of the world. The world operates on domination. It operates on violence. It operates on control, on coercion. Mm-hmm. And the way you succeed is by being a conqueror. But to be more than a conqueror, well, in the world's logic, that's the highest you can get. How can you be more than a conqueror? If a conqueror is someone who dominates, well, the only way to be more than a conqueror is to is to go outside of the realm of what already exists and to venture out into the realm of, of possibility, the realm of that which is not seen, right? Because a conqueror cannot be what he is unless he's operating in the realm of what already exists. So to be more than a conqueror is to be a creator, right? While mm-hmm. the conqueror dominates and competes over what already exists, the creator says, I don't have to compete with you about anything because you can never beat me at being me because I am unrepeatable and irreplaceable because I'm made in the image and likeness of God. And I'm not here to fight you over existing wealth. 
I'm here to manifest or express an aspect of the divine that has never been seen before or else he wouldn't have created me. And when that shapes your philosophy of success, you don't see another person's well-being as something that comes at your expense. And when you see someone in sin, when you see someone failing or falling, you don't go, yay, I get to feel good about myself. Yay, somebody over there looks stupid. You can say, no, here is someone that was created for the glory of God. And what a tragedy it is that they have fallen. How can we seek their redemption? How can we fight for their redemption? And a compassion culture is not a naive culture that, no, you didn't do anything wrong. Or no, I don't want to call out sin because it's politically incorrect. No, passion culture can be as harsh. Compassion culture can be as harsh as cancel culture. But, but the difference is not necessarily in the tone. The difference is in the goal. Yeah, yeah, right? that's good. When, 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 when the prophet Nathaniel came to, to uh, David and, and rebuked him, Man, that was a tough, that was a tough thing. Like he called him out. Risked his life, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. called him out. You look at Peter and Paul, like I called him out, you mm -hmm. know, before the others. Like they called people out, but the purpose of the call out was to call them home to mm -hmm. who they were in God. A call out was a way of saying, hey, brother, out of love, out of respect, you've lost your way. You're deviating from who you're meant to be. The purpose of calling you out is because you're destined for so much more than how you're acting right now. And if you come home and you repent, the kingdom of God wins because, mm -hmm. because we get our teammate back. You know, it reminds me really quickly uh, in, yeah. in the documentary, The Last Dance, um, about the Chicago Bulls dynasty, you know, the team that, you know, won six NBA titles in, in, in the span of eight years. They repeated twice. Amazing. There, there, there was a guy on the team, Dennis Rodman, who was just kind of like the wild guy, the party guy, you know, missing practice and stuff. And so this guy in the middle of the season, he goes to Vegas and he's just like partying in the middle of the season. It was clearly an irresponsible thing. Michael Jordan gets on a plane, goes to Vegas, knocks on his hotel room. Robin's in there fooling around. Jordan says, let's go. Let's go. Right now, Jordan didn't go to the media and, you know, have a good time talking smack about how bad of a guy Rodman was. He went and got him and said, let's go. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you're my teammate. We're here for a purpose. We're trying to win the championship. We can't do it without you. Get your behind out of this bed. We're getting out of Vegas. We're going on a plane. And we're going to go finish the work that we're supposed to be doing. To me, that's what compassion culture is about. It's about fighting for the lost because you understand that when other people are lost, you are lost too, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or, or you are suffering at a loss, that our team isn't operating at full capacity. So, uh, you know, as, as a church, we, we should never find ourselves having fun calling people out. Mm -hmm. Even when we push ourselves to do it out of obedience, we should never find ourselves enjoying the experience of calling someone out. We should be grieved by the fact that we even have to do that. And, uh, and we should do it understanding that we're talking to someone that's made in the image and likeness of God. It, it reminds me, uh, there's this movie with, uh, uh, I want to say it was uh, Vince Vaughn and uh, I forget the other actor. Um, Owen Wilson? I, I think one? it was uh, the, the guy from King and Queens, the, the Kevin oh, guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it was Vince Vaughn and that guy. And they were like okay. best friends. And they went in business together. And um, 
And Vince Vaughn's character found out that, that his buddy's wife was having an affair. And he came to a point where in order to protect his buddy, he had to tell him. And, 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 and you see him for a, a good portion of the movie just struggling to figure out how he's going to say this, right? The, the brother's struggling. He's not happy about it. He's mm-hmm. not having fun. He does not desire to be in this position. He is struggling, working it out. How am I going to tell my friend this thing that is going to crush him and break his heart, but that he absolutely needs to hear because it's the harsh truth, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what it should feel like for a believer to call somebody out. Like, you, you're in possession of a very delicate truth, and yet you're obligated to call somebody out for it. You sh- that shouldn't be fun. You shouldn't yeah. be enjoying it. That's right. And there's this idea. Um, oh, there's so much in there, TK. That was that was a lot of good stuff. There's a there's this idea. I actually I, th- I think the first person I heard talk about it was um, Jordan Peterson. He said, you know, we have this phrase and this idea um, of a white lie, you know, where you, you kind of fib a little bit to kind of assuage someone's ego or whatever, or whatever your reason is, you know, um, but you kind of fib a little bit. Um, but he also said, there's this other idea that it's opposite would be something like a black truth, which is where you say a true thing, but you're using the truth as instead of like um, uh, a golden tool to fix a problem, you're using it as a hammer and you're just smacking on a screw, you know, like you're just, you're using it totally improperly and you're just destroying all the purpose that's there, all the potential that's there. Um, and you're just weaponizing the truth basically, you know? Um, and there's something really twisted. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a garden Genesis page three kind of story, like weaponizing the truth, you know? Um, not just for cancellation, but for harm and, and for harm to the creativity, the life and love. And so much, that's so much of what's in packed into what you're talking about. There is like, if, if love is your, your, your personal Genesis, like what you're about is you, you truly want to will the good of another person, another person made in the image of God. And there's so much about the image of God. Like, I think politically speaking, we divide this thing up in goofy ways where a lot of people that are more like left leaning politically, they will, they will highlight and accentuate the, the Imago Dei and that we're equal, like we're a common humanity, which is absolutely true. But then they'll either denigrate, ignore, or uh, downplay the calling that comes with being made in the image of God and vice versa. You know what I mean? The right-leaning folks will say, oh, you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, you know, you have a calling, a purpose, etc. but there's no humanizing or that's an extreme case, right? But anyway, um, I get all, into all that to say, like, if love is your motivation, if love is what you're about and after, you'll find creative ways to meet people where they're at, wherever they're at on that spectrum, right? Um, and wherever they have the need. Um, and that is why if love is a genesis, like MLK talks about this all the time, that love is creative. Like hate, it denigrates, it destroys, it creates uh, upheaval. That's what hate does, you know? It tears down, but love, it builds, it creates. That's, that's the original story, right? Um, anyway. And uh, we're met for we're meant for union with that love and the Trinity. Man, you're like you're going to some really like theological places there. That's really good. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, well, let, let me piggyback off that. Yeah. You know, when we think about the words of Jesus, where he says, "Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." Mm-hmm. Letting us know right there that when it comes to other human beings, the truth is not a weapon with which we enslave. It's a tool with which we liberate. Right. So, so the purpose of speaking truth is liberation, and and sometimes those of us who profess to speak truth, we let ourselves off the hook by using the truth as an excuse for not caring about things like tone and timing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about in, in the book of Proverbs where the Bible says, uh, you know, that uh, he, he who 
he who speaks a blessing early in the morning will be taken as if he spake a curse, right? There's another that says a man offended is harder to be won than a strong city. You know, um, you know, like apples of gold and settings of silver. So our, our words, right words spoken in due season. There are a lot of things that we find in the book of Proverbs about the importance of speaking with the kind of tone and the kind of timing that will produce a result. Because mm -hmm. the purpose of speaking truth isn't so that we can feel good about ourselves for having spoken it. The purpose of speaking truth is so that that truth will function as a creative force that produces good in the world. So if I ask you uh, to um, pass the salt and you get mad and you start crying and be like, oh, you always talk to me so disrespectfully. I, sure, I can defend myself. I certainly have the right to be like, quit being a big baby. But if I care about being effective, even if I don't care at all about being politically correct, I'm going to try to figure out a way I can say that that can just get you to pass me the salt. Right? Mm -hmm. Because the result is more important than my right to defend myself and call you a big baby for crying about it. Right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think sometimes we, we overlook the responsibility that we have to be wise as serpents. That's that truth speaking part, mm -hmm. but to be harmless as doves. That's that compassion, love thing, lo love aspect of it. And, and, and I think if you want to know, if you want to know why people have such a hard time admitting that they're wrong, just watch how people act when they're right. The, the way people act when they're right is so obnoxious and, and, and so inconsiderate that it makes it a lot more understandable why people get so defensive about being wrong because we, we make it feel so costly for them, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When, when we don't speak the truth with grace. But I think what's important, what I'm trying to say here is that when we speak the truth, the person that we're talking to should feel as if we are fighting for them. Not as if we are fighting against them. They should feel as if we are fighting for them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the truth is a weapon against the kingdom of darkness, but it, but 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 it's not a weapon against right. our fellow brothers and sisters. It's, oh, it's not against a fellow human being, not at all. It should never be. Yeah, and, and it reminds me of uh, there's a young man in the Gospels, and he comes to Jesus and he says, "Christ, I, I want to follow you." You know, I want to follow you. And he goes, "What do I need to do?" And he's like, "Well, you know, you got a lot of stuff, and and you know." who knows how you got all of it, but for you, I think your problem is you need to give a lot away and, and take care of some people with that. And he, he goes away, but what's fascinating is that the text says he goes away sad. He doesn't go away like angry at the world and like pissed off at Jesus or anything like that. He goes away sad, you know? And so whatever Jesus said there and however he said it, it was very direct. Like it's, it's, it's clearly direct if, if we take that for the whole conversation. Um, but even if it's a summary of the conversation, that's pretty clear and cut. Um, but man, he went away sad. He did not go away angry. So he must have said it in such a way in that tone and timing and all the things you're talking about that that really was telling him, like, I'm trying to call the best out of you. I'm trying to help you be fully human um, in, a, in a very real way. Um, I'm not just doing this because it's the rules or I just like kind of like lording over people. It's like, no, this is what you need to do to be more alive, man. You know? Yeah. And, and this, by the way, is why I have a, you know, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a political person at all. Um, I, I actually describe myself as a political atheist. I'm a, I'm a non- <laughs> That's I'm a good. Non I'm going to steal that, man. That's, yeah. that's, that's clever. Yeah, I'm a non-believer in, in the salvific power of the political process, a non-believer in the, uh, the legitimacy of the right to rule, uh, all of those things. But, but, you know, for me, sin 
is not a left or a right thing. Right? And, 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 and I have had the, the, the privilege and the plight of spending you know, large portions of my life around people at all places on the political spectrum. And apart from what people say about the policies and politicians they support, I see no difference in terms of like any group having a monopoly on sin. Like, like when we get into things like the Ten Commandments, when we get into things like our private thoughts, when we get into all those things that Jesus talked about, I don't see anything going, I don't see the slightest bit of evidence that people on the left or people on the right have an easier time dealing with sin. You know, yeah. um, I, like, like the world is fallen, right? Not, not, not to the left, not to the right, it is fallen, period. And so much, so much political talk amounts to using talking points to slam dunk on people, you know? And I think how you talk to and about people when you're trying to score a point is very different than how you talk to and about people when you're trying to solve a problem. And I, I believe that church needs to be in the business of trying to solve problems, right? So we can talk about whatever we want to talk about, but if we're going to talk about black on black crime, let's talk about it as people who actually want to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in having a conversation where the only time or reason you ever bring up black on black crime is because you just want to like slam dunk on somebody over there so you can make them shut up for whatever they complain about. I mean, it's, like, it's a quick if that's, gotcha, if that's the game you want to yeah. play, go ahead. But that's not my conversation. I'm trying no. to solve a problem. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And what about, I mean, there'd be like an inverse to that too, right? I mean, I, I feel like we've talked about this before. There's a, uh, it, it borders, I, I like have to watch myself. It usually just makes me sad, but occasionally it'll make me frustrated if I see it like enough times in a row. Um, and, and if you spend like a little over an hour on Twitter, you will see it enough times in a row. So I try not to do that. But man, the, uh, the politicization, I'll say, of the black community by the left and the right, it's, it's really, uh, it borders on disgusting. Again, it's sad, but it, it'll, it'll like, it'll straight frustrate me sometimes. And that both directional thing, like you said, the black on black crime is not a, for many people, it's not a genuine concern. It's just a gotcha talking point, you know, and a dunk, like you said. Um, and the inverse, there's, there's, there's things there too. I mean, do you want to speak to that? Do you have opinions on that? Uh, just how um, it's such a frustration for me, especially because the opportunity here is so strong with um, race, but racial, racial tension and so many things that are going on in culture right now. Uh, the opportunity here for especially the church to show up and be like a, a counter narrative and a, a counter voice instead of playing the political games you're talking about. And I would argue instead of objectifying black people as political tools, um, there's an opportunity here to really bring out the best in each other like you talked about, one another bringing out the best in that common humanity way. So anyway, I, I'm interviewing you. So I, <laughs> you want to share on that at all? Yeah. So one way I, I like to frame the issue is, is um, think about it in terms of a fire, okay? Um, a fire is this force of nature, not inherently good, not inherently bad. It can be controlled. It can get out of control. Fire's just a fire. A catalyzing agent, uh, fuel, all right? Fuel is a catalyzing agent, which if you pour it on a fire, could cause the fire to get bigger and to get out of control, right? No matter how much fuel you have, if you don't already have a fire, it's not going to do anything. You can't just like pour out a bunch of fuel and create a fire. You, you mm -hmm. need to have a source for fire. But once you have a source for fire, pouring fuel on it will make the whole thing get out of control. 
I look at fire as human suffering, okay? Everybody has fire in their life, okay? And there are moments where it can become very profitable for people to come along and pour fuel on that fire so that it becomes this really big, dangerous, noticeable thing. And whatever agenda they have becomes much more appealing as a result of that, right? I think if you are someone interested in a political career, there are fewer things more beneficial to you, fewer things more useful to you than finding people, especially groups of people who identify with some form of suffering. Because if no one feels like they're suffering, everybody feels like, hey, my life is good, I'm doing well, then you don't get to have a career because nobody needs you. You, you can't be a hero unless there's a victim, right? You can't be a hero unless somebody needs some saving, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if, if you want to be a hero, then finding someone who needs some saving and then maybe pouring some fuel on their fires, you know, to exacerbate the conditions, well, I mean, that's a formula for success. And, and I believe something that we see on the left, and I'm, I'm going to get to the right too, because I, yeah, I, I good, want to talk commentary on both. I believe something that we see on the left a lot is we see a lot of fuel pouring on the fires within black communities. And because that's very profitable to the left, because at select times, and I do say select because you better believe it, it's not a continual, ever-present kind of compassion. It's a politically profitable kind of compassion that selectively expresses itself when it's most useful. And the reason I know this is because you can take, you can take communities on the left, like you take Hollywood, for instance, where there have been times, man, where black communities have criticized Hollywood for being racist in different ways and where those communities did not want to hear it. Oh, they'll chill it and like stomp it down. Like, you know, chill it out. Yeah, yeah. Stop making it about race. Like yeah. you're the one that's the real racist. A everything that we associate with what people on the right say, people on the left have said that same stuff, right? W whenever the conversation wasn't initiated by them. So the left, they love talking about race and oppression as long as they control the narrative, as long as they set the rules for when it's talked about, who gets to talk about it, right? Um, and, and so it's very politically profitable when, when things are happening to say, hey, pour some fuel on that, pour some fuel on that because we get to set ourselves up as the people that care about the oppressed. And, and it's interesting, you know, there's an old clip, I've even seen some people sharing it, but, you know, of Malcolm X talking about beware of the liberal, you know, yeah. uh, he, he was warning black people, don't, don't trust the liberal because the liberal, at least the wolf, you know where the wolf stands. The wolf wants to eat you, right? At, at least the wolf is honest with you. But the fox, man, the liberal's like a fox. The fox will smile at you. The fox, you know, will make you think, well, maybe this is my friend. Maybe this is my ally. And when it gets close enough to make you vulnerable, it will eat you, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and so there is a lot of fuel pouring. And, and, and I believe right now, because of a number of things going on, the, not the least of which is, is the upcoming election, where it's very profitable right now to be talking about race and to be pointing out racism. And, and by the way, I don't say this as somebody who thinks that racism is made up. I'll come to right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That'll be a good clarification. But I don't, I don't hear that. So, yeah. But, but it is very profitable right now. But the news cycle will get bored with this. The news cycle will, will move on. If, if, if you're a black person 
and, and you're enjoying all of the, the, the attention that's coming right now to things that perhaps we've been talking about for a long time, don't get too comfortable. Like they will move on. And when you try to bring it up in the future, they will say, ah, ah, we, we had that conversation. We dealt with that in 2020, right? Go back yep. to the same thing. Yep. Um, so, so you have that side of things. But then there's something, a tendency that I see on the right that's interesting. So the left, you know, a lot of people on the left, and, and, and I'm speaking in very oversimplified terms because there are mm -hmm. exceptions to all of this. Yeah. People on the right, they see the pouring of the fuel on the fire, right? And they immediately get mad at the left and they start shouting and yelling at the, at the left, you guys are the real bigots, right? You guys are the real racists. Now, let me tell you why this is understandable. Because the left has completely dominated the right when it comes to the rhetoric of compassion, okay? Right. The right can't touch the left when it comes to this. And, and, and partially, the right carries itself with great pride over not even feeling the need to talk that way right? Mm -hmm. uh, we care about principles, care about freedom, care about the ideology. We're not going to pander any of that kind of stuff. The left has done a very good job at, at mastering that. I feel your pain. I feel your pain, right? Right. Oh, the yeah. left's got that down. Yeah. And yeah. so the left is kind of like, when it comes to that game, kind of like the big brother that's been like bullying the little brother for years. Like they, they will call people on the right bigots and racists whenever they want and people on the right will get upset about it and feel hurt by it, feel misunderstood. And then you try to call somebody on the left racist, they just laugh at you. Yeah, right? they, don't, they, just, don't, they don't even take it serious. Yeah, they don't yeah, even they, take you the serious. The narrative is fixed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like they, they control that narrative so strongly yeah. that in any election, swap out the candidates, the, the, whoever's running on the left, they are going to seem like the person that truly cares about the suffering. Mm -hmm. That, that's how they're going to look because they've mastered that rhetorical game. Even if, even if there are cracks in the system, even if it's crumbling a little bit, they're still winning that game. And, and they care very much about that game. People on the right, so tired of being called racist, so tired of being called bigots, so tired of being, you know, labeled this and that, that when they see the fuel being poured on the fire, <clears throat> they skip right over the black people who actually are experiencing fire, right? They skip right over that. And they go shout at the left and be like, you're the real bigot. And so both sides are kind of like fighting with each other. On the left, they're kind of like exploiting the sufferings of black folks. On the right, they're just like mad at what the left is doing because the left is not only doing this, but blaming them for it too, leaving them holding the bag, right? Yeah. And, and somewhere in between, Black people with are experiencing real fires, and, and, and we're just kind of like these political talking points that are part of the conversation that different political groups are having about us, but not really with us, right? Mm -hmm. so, so one group is like, black lives matter. White cops are killing black lives. And the other group is like, yeah, but what about black on black crime? Well, what about what's going on in Chicago? And, and, and what's kind of funny to me is, by the way, the people who ask this question, it's like, I can, t I can tell you about black on black crime. I, I can tell you about what's going on in Chicago because since I actually care about the answer to that question, since I actually care about black and black crime, I have conversations with people that are doing the, the work to try to solve it, right? That, that question for me is not a slam dunk to get yeah. someone to shut up. That question for me is one that I actually care about the answer to. But, but both sides, whatever the point is, 
both sides are just like really talking to each other and black folks are in the middle. And, and, and what I would say, you know, to people on the right, what I would say is, look, don't confuse the fuel with the fire. Okay. Um, don't, don't confuse where the spotlight shines with what people in black communities are doing. Because I can tell you now, there are a lot of black people who truly do care about the problems in our community. There are a lot of black people who truly do believe that there are problems in our community that we are responsible for being the ones to fix. But you know what? That's not as interesting to the media as a white cop killing a black dude. Like, let's not be naive here. The, the, like, every good story is not the kind of story that makes the news. A story about a serial killer who takes 10 lives is way more interesting to the media than the story about a father who comes home every day and takes care of his 10 children. That's boring for the media, right? That's boring. And so all of the positive work and positive efforts that Black people are trying to do in our communities to make things better, all of the constructive conversations that we're having, the reason you don't know what's going on in Chicago is because that's not interesting to the media to talk about. Yeah. Where's, and, C, and, where's the and, CNN and addition, special for that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the old adage is like, if it bleeds, it leads. Like, you know, the idea being that even if, and, and it's actually, uh, Coleman Hughes was talking about this uh, yesterday or today. I don't remember he dropped a podcast on this, around this topic, actually. And he said that one of the tensions we're experiencing, you know, looking at it kind of from an anthropology perspective is you've got, everyone's got a smartphone now, which is good in a lot of ways because you can catch a lot of stuff that people could lie on before. Like if the police officer did do something shady and you got it on film and we've, we've seen that happen. So that's, that's like a legit thing. Um, and so there's that, but then the tension that comes with that. So it's like, it's always like any virtue take it to its extreme becomes a vice, right? Because now what you have is a world in which I don't think we, or I don't know what it would look like to ever get here, but even if we eradicated 99% of uh, racial incidents, let's say, uh, there would still be 1% that could be filmed, and then there could be a narrative attached to that. And it's such a tension, you know, because if it bleeds, it leads, right? So even if the world is getting better, the, the story would almost never be things other than like random people that sell a medium amount of books, you know, <laughs> uh, you, you'll never hear. Uh, people saying, hey, the world's actually got 99% better, you know, in whatever context it is. That's one point. The other yeah. point, dude, is uh, one of the biggest tensions here is just people not getting together um, like this, but also just in person. Because uh, you it would be unconscionable to use, I think you can talk about black on black or white on white crime in a way that is constructive and intentional because it's a, it's a legit phenomenon, right? Um, you can talk about it in a way that's intentional in a lot of the ways you're talking about before, but you wouldn't use it in that dunk, gotcha, slam dunk way you're talking about if you actually knew, like, say, one black person, let's say, you know, because then you'd, you'd know that you presumably know that the conversation in that community is happening. Um, it's just not happening out loud with the media bump and whatever else. You know? And so, um, it, and it is happening out loud. What I'm saying is it's just not happening with the megaphone, right, of media, yeah. let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and something that's happening, I mean, I, I see it playing out in real time. People are failing to make the distinction between what they are experiencing in their immediate reality and what's being broadcasted to them on a screen. And don't get me wrong, there, there certainly is more to life than what you immediately experience, but not less to life. 
not less than distinction. And and you've got people, for instance, saying things like, I, I, you know, I, I can't even, you know, I can't even talk to a black person, for instance, without them thinking I'm racist. And this is somebody that lives in like all white suburb. They don't go, there's like no black people at their church or their school. They spend all their time around white people, but their time on Twitter and their time on the news has them thinking that all black people are like this, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got, you got people doing that to white people too. It's, it's, it's on all sides, but it's, it's very interesting because if I were a social engineer, and I wanted to manipulate people and, and control their belief systems, I couldn't think of a better way than to position people like we have them now, where everybody's isolated from one another. There's 100%. no human contact because the, the, the best fact-checking device we have is, 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 inter- is human interaction. The best stereotype destroyer that we have is human interaction. But when we're isolated, we're siloed, we're just around you know, the people in our, in our immediate families or our roommates. Now, those things that we watch on TV, you, you, can, you can put people in any state you want. You can have them afraid of every cop. You can have them afraid of every black person. You can have them afraid of it. And, and you start to forget some very basic things like, yo, the overwhelming majority of black people in these communities, statistically, bro, statistically, bro, they're not criminals. <laughs> they're hardworking people just just trying to make the best of their lives right but 80 percent of black let, 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 let me give you a statistic to help you 80 percent of nba players are black men you are naive beyond help if you believe that 80 percent of black men are even remotely capable of playing in the nba <laughs> Right. Sure. Yeah, right? yeah. 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 You know, you know, um, uh, the overwhelming yeah. majority of millionaires are white men. Okay. I know a lot of white men and I can tell you the overwhelming majority of white men who will ever exist will never come close to being millionaires. Right. <laughs> like, like you, you gotta be able to reason about things in such a way that you don't fall for these silly fallacies, you know, that come from just, you know, spending all your time on social media, arguing with bots. I mean, half the people that you're arguing with, you know, are anonymous accounts. We don't even know if they're real. You know, people are saying things in a low cost environment. They never say in physical space. Anyway, anyway, if I just had to boil down this whole thing, I started with, with the fire and the fuel. I would say on the side of the left, because I, because I agree with Frederick Douglass here, I'm, I'm willing to work with anybody who is for the advancement of freedom, for the well-being of humanity. And I believe that most people are sincere, even if I think they are factually incorrect about certain things they sincerely believe. Mm. I, I do believe that there are, are nefarious people who are, are truly consciously trying to take away our freedoms. But I believe that those people are always a smaller number who use masterful rhetoric to convince sincere, well-meaning people that we should align with them. So I, what I would say to people on the left, is I love, the, I love the rhetoric of compassion. I love the explicitly stated concern for people who are suffering, for people who are marginalized, for people who feel disenfranchised. That resonates very strongly with me and the gospel emphasis 
on looking out for the heartbroken, looking out for the people that have been, you know, uh, pushed away and ostracized, the leper, the tax collector, the adulteress. I love that. But let's make a strong distinction between feeling sympathy for people and doing right by them. And let us hold ourselves accountable for advocating for solutions that offer more than a rhetoric of sympathy. Because as Thomas Sowell said, a policy must be judged not by the intentions behind it, but by the actual outcomes. And so many things that are done in the name of love, in the name of good intentions, in the name of helping black people actually end up having the reverse impact, right? Mm -hmm. That's what this whole debate is right now between Black Lives Matter lowercase, Black Lives Matter capitalized. The majority of people who say Black Lives Matter are sincere, well-meaning people who only mean the lowercase. And all they're saying is, hey, because all lives matter, Black Lives Matter. And all lives don't matter unless Black lives are treated with dignity too. That's all they mean. Mm -hmm. But the small number of people who know the details of that capitalized version of it are the ones that are controlling the narrative, right? So, so we gotta make sure, if anybody on the left is listening to me, like I'm willing to work with anybody to help promote freedom, but let's make sure that we're not just letting ourselves off the hook by being outraged at the right things. Outraged is good, but don't confuse moods with morality, don't confuse emotions with ethics. Ultimately, what are you doing? And then for my people on the right, I would say, don't take out the frustrations you have with the media, on black folks or, or on whoever the media is focused on because the overwhelming majority of people that you will ever interact with in life, they have no control whatsoever over what CNN does a special on, okay? Um, I, wish, I wish I could decide. Most of the people in Chicago wish that they could get equal attention on all their issues. I lost a childhood friend to gun violence at the end of last year. And, and you know what? I would love for him to get the same attention as George Floyd got. But, but you know what? I don't control that. You know, I don't control that. So don't take out frustrations, legitimate frustrations you have with media and selective outrage on real human beings. And, and remember, just because there may be some people who you consider to be political opponents pouring fuel on the fire, it doesn't mean that the fires aren't real. Go talk with real human beings about the fire and, and help them put out those fires. And, 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 and connect with them over the fires that you have as well. And maybe they can offer you something to help you put out your fires and we can work together to create a world where it's either fireless or we're harnessing our fire for constructive purposes, you know? But yeah, that's what I would say about it. Dude, that's huge, man. That's really good. And, and yeah, if we can get to a world where, yeah, like you said, it, lots of different, you know, ways that we... Um, designate, distinguish, and even divide ourselves up in so many ways. If we could get into a place where we're actually humanizing those folks, that would just completely transform um, not just our rhetoric, but our action in so many ways. Because a question I've been asking people, so this conversation we're talking about, it's, I would say like at our, at our church, even at a local level, um, in, in the Northwest, I'm speaking more broadly about not just my specific congregation, but congregations within the Northwest. There's a pretty sharp divide even in smaller communities on like uh allegiances toward this capital b blm sentiment even but especially the lowercase version like you're talking about and then confusion about well, what's baked into the cake or am i you know in the best of intentions and then on the other side um i would just affirm a bunch of the things you said about that 
easy dismissing of real things or um, using like legitimate like statements as gotchas instead of like actually humanizing the person they're talking about. So 100% agree with all of that. Um, the tension that exists though is like, how do we help people um, live forward and, and live out of that and give them kind of a way out? Because I think so many of the things you said are true. Like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Like so, so many of the people that are up to this stuff, like there's, there's just, they're un, unwitting participants in a lot of ways, right? So how do we kind of call them out of that and call them back to something? Um, and, and anyway, let me, I'll ask that, but I'll say something before I ask that. The, uh, a way I've been talking to folks about this is just asking them when they're getting all charged up in the rhetoric and whatever the conversation is about, whatever it is, is just asking them, hey, could you define the win for me here? And uh, just define the win. Like, what are you, what are you up to? What are you trying to get after? What are you trying to fix or problem solve or whatever? And sometimes like, they're like, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm trying to figure it out. That's fair, but that's a good place to like understand that. Cause that should temper how much action you're willing to take or whatever, or your rhetoric. Um, but there's others that might just say like, well, my end is, I feel like my freedoms are being channeled on. I want more freedom. And it's like, okay, well, what's the win there? Like freedom for what? And it's like, just for freedoms, you know, because freedom, you know, and it's like, and that's a caricature, but you know what I mean? Like if, and sometimes that defensiveness starts getting coming up, like you said, but maybe after the fact or after an hour of cooling off, it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I'm, I'm up to this, why I'm so charged about it, you know? Um, anyway, so that is a reality. So how do we help people um, maybe define the win, but also how do we help like call them out of those silly and uh, tribal narratives that just really like you said a few folks are really controlling and running on that so anyway you have thoughts on that yeah yeah um you know i i think um so i, I think about the verse in the bible that says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god and, and, and there are two things i gather out of that number one your your faith comes from the the source of information upon which you feed right? Like it comes from hearing, which is a process of, of taking in and internalizing a way of seeing reality that comes from someone specific, right? Mm -hmm. and, then, and then faith itself is, is not merely uh, intellectual assent to a correct set of propositions about the Christian faith. Faith is a way of seeing. Faith is a form of spiritual perception, right? Uh, it's one of the reasons I believe that, that faith is often contrasted with the ability to see with the eye. We walk by faith and not by touch. We walk by faith and not by sound. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? Faith is not the denial of physical reality or the denial of what we see with our eyes. It is a way of looking beyond them to see that which cannot be seen with the physical eye. It, it's a kind of discernment. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to discern what is right from what is wrong, the ability to see at a deeper level uh, it comes from your primary source of information. And this may sound obvious to some, but, but something that I see, and it, it troubles me uh, far more than, than what people actually believe or who they vote for, it's the sources that we look to to inform us about our world. It's our patterns of content consumption. We, we don't have time to read the Bible. We don't have time to read, you know, books on Christian philosophy. We don't have time to study apologetics. We don't have time to watch, you know, YouTube videos and all sorts of interesting informative things, but we've got all the time in the world 
to keep up with, you know, every video of somebody rioting and looting, every video of somebody yelling at each other. It's like you have to consciously take charge of your content consumption patterns because if you want to have different responses to your circumstances, then you got to have some different source of intake. I'll give you an example of this. When I, when I think about the, uh, the story of David and Goliath, mm-hmm. what we usually focus on is this moment where David is able to exercise this uncommon faith. And with just a slingshot, you know, he's able to, you know, like kill Goliath. And we kind of look at that as like, oh yeah, you know, like he had faith. But where did that faith come from? Why did he have faith when other people had fear? When you read the story, I forget the exact amount of days, but it talked about how Goliath would come out and they would all set themselves up, the army of Israel and Goliath and his, the Philistines, and he would tell them what he was going to do to them and all the different ways that he would do it, right? Mm-hmm. And it said that they, that they came and took that stand and he did this for like 14 days or something like that. But we know it was definitely more than like a few times. So there was a process where everybody in the army was feeding themselves information about how strong Goliath was, how many people he killed, all the different ways that he could kill them. They, they, they were sitting in front of the, t- under, under the TV every day, watching the Goliath channel, taking in all sorts of information about how much, how doomed they were going to be. Yeah. And, and the difference between David is he wasn't listening to that. He, he didn't spend 14 days or one day listening to Goliath say that kind of stuff. You know, he was out tending his father's sheep. And we know from his writings that he was, you know, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be plant, he shall be like a tree planted forth by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. The seasons change, the fruit comes and goes. But that tree is planted forth by the rivers of water. Why? Because he's meditating in God's word day and night. And whatsoever he does shall prosper. But the ungodly are not so. They're not so, right? So when your mind is in that space and you walk out, you know, money on business, and you hear some guy talking this message of doom and gloom, it's actually shocking to you. Hmm. Who is this? Who is this uncircumcised bill? You guys going to sit here and listen to this dude say all this blasphemous, disrespectful stuff? Somebody give me my slingshot, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's what it feels like. And so I think the way forward and the way out is being like David and modeling ourselves after him in terms of his meditation life, his prayer life, his study life. I mean, it's like with a computer. You can't expect an output without a corresponding input. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's funny because the number one question I get asked when I talk to high school students and stuff is, is how do I stay motivated? How do I get motivated? And I always ask, well, are you taking anything in? They're like, what do you mean? Do you, ever, do you ever watch any videos that are motivational at all? Do you ever listen to any podcasts that are motivated? And, and, and it's, 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 it's funny because they're, they're, you find there are all these people who genuinely want to feel motivated, and they're literally not listening to anything, reading anything, or watching anything that's designed to motivate, yeah. right? But you've got to have a pattern of that. And so I tell them, like, look, this is what I want you to do. Five minutes every day. 
I want you to go pull up something like impact theory, right? Where somebody's being interviewed about, about success or work ethic or something. Or I want you to go pull up, you know, like an Eric Thomas motivational video, whatever. Just give it five minutes. And, and, and trust me, you're not going to feel motivated when you do that. Don't expect it to do anything for you right then and there. Just take it in and then go about your day. Do it for 30 days. You won't feel any different. It's just like eating a plate of vegetables or working out. Um, the dude you're looking at in the mirror is going to be the same. You're not going to go to the gym and work out and look different. Oh, it'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but you commit to the process, and then that process begins to show up as a different way of thinking, a different way of feeling, a different way of reacting to things. And, and, and I think that's, to me, that's the beginning of, of the answer. Proverbs 1 and 33, the voice of wisdom, after describing all of the calamities that will overcome those who, who ignore her voice. She says, I go out into the marketplace. I call out on the streets. They ignore me. They're too busy. She describes all these calamities. And then she says in that final verse, but those who listen to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. That's the promise mm -hmm. for those of us who meditate on God's word and those of us who devote ourselves to the study of wisdom. That truly is the answer. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Like it is more to be desired than silver and gold, which means if you're willing to work eight hours a day to get some silver and gold, at least 20 minutes on some <laughs> wisdom. I mean, yeah, that's what it says. Well, you, you gotta, I mean, we are, well, there's a lot of things in that. I mean, and a lot of people in the church and outside of the church have been writing about this a lot more lately. Um, it's, it's bordering on becoming like a popular psychology, but this, the reality of that we're habit forming creatures, like that's, it's what we are. We're rhythm pattern animals or creatures, right? But we're, we're pattern forming creatures. We're, we're habit forming. Um, it's very natural to us. It's, it's what we do. Um, and, uh, and in such a way that most of, I mean, the percentage is hard to say, but I mean, most people would say like 80 plus percent of our behaviors and some would say 90 plus are automatic. They're not really thought through or thought about. Um, it's things that we've just conditioned ourselves into, so to speak. Um, so those scrolls and those flicks through Twitter or whatever it is, um, it, if you actually took a second to think about it, um, you'd be like, wait, why did I even pull my phone out? Like, you know what I mean? Or those times when you forget your phone even and you start reaching for your pocket to grab it, to scroll because you're bored for two seconds, like those types of things, dude. It's, um, we, are, we are automatic and habit-forming creatures. So I think you're right. You have to breaks not just break those habits but you have to and it's not just an abstaining or a fasting thing you have to like add in or adjust some of your now available time with new habits and that's huge and there's some little tricks that come with that too um i mean this is more like a stoic principle at the end of the day but i've been telling some people like hey i'm not saying to be an out and out pessimist um but just try this try for two weeks maybe a month to just expect the news to be negative all of the time, and media and news, like both, let's say, just expect it to be negative. And here's what'll happen, like three things. Uh, one, um, you won't be surprised when it's negative because it probably will be most of the time. Uh, two, you'll be pleasantly surprised when it's not, it'll be like really refreshing. Um, and you'll, re you'll be able to see it and recognize it more clearly even because you've just been expecting the negative or whatever. And again, it doesn't mean you don't engage it. It doesn't mean you don't like look at it or interact with it in any way, just expect it's, narrative and the uh the opinion around it to be negative right um, yeah. but then part of the wind of what you're talking about about the breaking the habit is it'll get insanely boring to you when you like kind of transcend it in a sense and you're like hey i expect this thing to be negative and then it is negative it's 
there's no surprise, no spontaneity, no fun about that anymore. Because you all of a sudden, you can predict the news, basically, you know, which sounds crazy. Like, I mean, you may not be able to predict the specifics of the event, but you can predict the opinion, rhetoric, and again, like the, what do you want to call it? Like the, uh, the value of it even, you know what I mean? Like what they're up to. And it gets boring. And then you're like, I don't even, I, I care about it differently now. I'm going to care about like catching up on like facts about, okay, we've got this COVID stuff going on. I'm going to get in on that and I'm going to try and figure that out. But the narrative stuff, it's not going to get me as charged anymore because I just expect this all direction negativity to be going on, you know? And it just, it, it allows you, it positions you to break that habit. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I, I really, really like that. Um, so, something that, that I'll, I'll throw in the pot. There's a book by Robert Fritz called The Path of Least Resistance. I, I really love this book, but um, he talks about the distinction between what he calls the creative orientation and the reaction response orientation. Two fundamentally different ways to live life. The reaction response orientation is one in which circumstances and conditions are the driving force in your life. They always come first. And success is defined by having good reactions and responses to the things that happen. And being informed is defined by being aware of all the stuff that's happening that you need to react and respond to. The creative orientation is one in which intentionality and imagination are the driving forces in your life. And success is defined by how effective you are at bringing forth the results that matter most to you. And being informed is defined by being aware of all the things you need to know in order to bring together what's inside of you so that you can manifest it in the physical world. This is such an important distinction because I think we have been so heavily sold on a particular understanding of what it means to be informed. And mm -hmm. we, we kind of feel bad about ourselves when we don't know about that person in Missouri who killed somebody, or we don't know about that thing that happened in New York that we literally can't do anything about. We, we, we feel bad when we're not informed. And watching the news and consuming all this content, it's, it's supposed to be what's informed. And if I, were, if I were to suggest to you that you have a moral duty to spend more time studying third century monasticism, or a more moral duty to actually transcribe those Miles Davis solos so that you can become you know, a great jazz musician, or that you had a moral duty to be reading Shakespeare. You know, that, that would sound absurd compared to all of this reactionary stuff. But mm -hmm. if you think about it, the best kinds of solutions come from creativity, not reactivity. Th think about it, for instance. Um, take, take something that's at the center of like the debate today, you know, let, let's take, uh, well, actually take any of this stuff. The, the political debates that we're having, the, the debates about police and race and all that kind of stuff. What's making these conversations possible? A few things, a few things that have come from creativity, by the way. One, the internet. Mm -hmm. Two, social media sites like YouTube and, tw and Twitter. And three, the mobile phone with camera cameras high quality cameras being in all of them being able to take videos you take away those things most of these conversations we're having aren't even taking place right we're back to the world that we grew up in that we were all too familiar with now was that was the cell phone invented as a way to advance the discussion on police brutality no it was not was the cell phone invented as a reaction to all the problems happening in the black community no it came from some other place 
it came not from a place of like, what's wrong and how can I make it go away? Where's that fire coming from and how can I put it out? It came from a place of like, hey, what's something interesting and cool nobody's done yet? Or hey, what's a way to, to allow us to communicate even faster? What's the way for us to make music even better? What's the way for us to make movies in a different way? What's the way for us to be able to talk to somebody? All of that stuff sounds so irresponsible. Mm -hmm. It sounds so detached from reality. And yet it's the source of all of these wonderful tools that we have that we can use to have these discussions and to try to fight for our freedom. And so if you limit your possibilities in life and you limit your priorities to, you know, reacting to the stuff that's happening right now, you will be so bogged down in particulars that you'll never grasp the timeless principles that we can use to manipulate, modify, manage, or even transcend those particulars. I believe it was Henry Ford who said something like, uh, whether he said it or not, it, it works as a useful fiction. <laughs> he said something like, uh, had I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have suggested a, a faster horse, right? You, you don't get an automobile by, by, you know, by reacting to what already exists or by trying to improve what already exists you get an and automobile the first bus. automobiles like that's a great example i mean not only did, they just kind of sucked they were and they're technically like useless in comparison to an actual horse when they came out let's see because uh, yeah. they couldn't do as much they required more maintenance they were going to break down like crazy there's not like parts or mechanics yet like they were fairly useless at first right but then i mean now the sky's the limit right and, and then yeah. they'll be on their way out soon you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah, and they, they were regarded by the general populace as dangerous and irresponsible. Mm -hmm. This romanticized history that everybody was like, oh, just give it time. This is going to be the next big thing. That was not the case at all. People were afraid of it. That's where we got the red flag from because there were regulations that in order to drive an automobile, you needed an engineer with you in the car. Well, and okay, there had yeah, to be yeah. someone who ran ahead waving a red flag to let people know the giant death machine was on its way. That's insane. And, and, and to create an automobile, you had to come from a place that was just so much deeper than, than reacting to, no. to the negativity of your time. So I, I would encourage people, don't, don't be brainwashed. Don't be brainwashed into thinking that someone other than you and what you know your purpose in life to be is, you know, gets to define what it means to be informed and strive to inform yourself about the things that are related to your calling because your biggest impact on the world is not gonna be the result of keeping up with everything that's going on. It's gonna be keeping up with everything that's related to the particular way that you're here to change the world. And that's through the area of your gifting. If you're a musician and that's what God's called you to do, you actually should be spending more time keeping up with the latest music than keeping up with the latest killing. Like, because you are more likely to change the world that way. Yeah, and it's so hard to believe that, I and mean, people get a guilt about that, dude. And uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm trying to measure my own life on this principle, but I'm asking others to do the same. And uh, and I'm even taking it beyond myself and others, and kind of measuring my response or reaction to other people. And the principle is this: it's like just pay attention to the passion in someone's living, and secondarily, in the passion in their speech. Like if the speech is serving the living, and there's passion on passion, like let's get it, let's go, you know. And you got a lot of that. I mean, you're, you're a preacher's kid. You basically can preach, you know, like you're, you're, you're getting it today. You know, you believe what you're talking about. So it doesn't feel like this empty, fluffy rhetoric or this like, uh, you know, just clever internet stuff. It's like, you believe what you're talking about. And then you're like living it out, which is so great. And not just living it out. You're trying to help 
other people live it out. So, I mean, you'd be someone that I'd evaluate on that and be like, I want to talk to that guy more. You know what I mean? But there's other people that, and I don't mean to like dismiss or cancel people at the level of relationship. But again, if it's a reactivity thing, my reaction is going to be very tempered, uh, chilled, or the amount of time I give to my mental faculty toward that saying, phrase, moment, whatever it is. If it's just passion and speech and I don't see any passion in action before, during, or after, uh, I'm going to, if anything, just want to call them out of that rather than affirm that or fight that or whatever that thing is. I'm just going to want to try and bring the human back, right? To the place of creativity and the place of like living like you're talking about. So make music, man. Like, and, and when you make music, that's a great example. Like you are manifesting and creating and cultivating beauty in the world that's built on transcendent principles, like you said, you know, built on these traditions that isn't just, it's, it truly really is transcendent because it's in every single culture. I mean, to manifest beauty in the world does wonders, right? And so, um, yeah, but to say that sounds heartless and absurd. It's so crazy. So let's land the plan here. How, how can, how, how are you? Like, let's plug what you're up to. What are you up to? How can you help people like manifest some of that beauty, goodness, et cetera, whatever it is. And I'm not trying to be too woo or new age when I say that, like, to truly be a more full human being that can push back, like we said, the gates of hell, um, whether it is uh, racism in their community or whatever it is, like there's, I'll say this actually before I pass to the last question to you. I shared this last week with another guy and um, MLK wrote, uh, after you talked about Malcolm earlier, right? After Malcolm got killed and assassinated, MLK wrote to his wife this letter. And I, I, he had to have known the letter was gonna be public because of some of the, I'll say like the very clear slash political like version of his speech that was in it, but he, he didn't like lose the person on the other side and all the ways you're talking about. And he said this twice in the letter, dude, he said, now you, you know that your husband and I completely disagreed in rhetoric and how we thought we could solve this problem. I being on this like nonviolent, not pacifist, but like active nonviolence. Like I was about, that life in that way and he had his opinions and he moved and shifted anyway he gets through all of that and he says but here's the thing at the bottom of it we had our finger on the same problem we just had these different means of going about it and different opinions and i actually think if we would have got the dialogue more and lived longer we could have come closer together because we were after the same problem like i believe he was genuine in his effort i just totally disagree with his methodology anyway how are you helping folks uh in a similar fashion affirm their humanity uh, become a more full human and, and fight injustice, et cetera, whatever it is in the world, not just in these uh, myopic, narrow, monolithic ways. Like, how can people get connected to what you're doing? Because I think you're doing some really cool work. Um, you mentioned some of your work at the beginning of the show today, but plug yourself, dude. Like, what are you doing? Like, how can people get connected to how you're helping people be better? Yeah. So, uh, so there are a couple of, couple of questions within that question. So yeah. first I, I think about the words of Jesus where one of the reasons why he was so disappointing to people is because he came not to build a, a kingdom of man, a kingdom built with human hands, but an invisible kingdom, right? Uh, to use the words of Dallas Willard, he wanted to bring about a renovation of the heart, you know? Um, and to me, I'm invested in that as well. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. I'm not here to crack a new joke on your favorite politician or the one that you hate. Um, I think the best place to fight bigotry, the best place to fight injustice, uh, the best place to fight coercion is in your own heart. I think 
all, all efforts to liberate the world should be an extension of your own continual practice of self-liberation. I believe this is what the Bible talked about when it said to work out your own salvation with mm -hmm. fear and trembling. Like, have a sense of reverence and deep respect, you know, for how free you are in your own life. If I had to boil down my mission to a single statement, I would say, I'm not here to merely create a society in which everyone feels free. I'm here to cultivate individuals who can learn how to live freely in any kind of society. You know, uh, it was Camus who said to, you know, to, to, to make your very existence an act of rebellion, right? Oh, yeah. um, there's no way you can set up this world, no matter how free you make it. We can, we, even if we woke up in a fully voluntary society tomorrow, freedom is the sort of thing by its very nature that can always be given away. Someone can always talk you out of it. They can promise you an easy goodie over here. They can create an illusion that makes you afraid and trade it in for security over there. But there's always a way people can be talked and tricked out of their, their freedom. Isn't, is that not the beginning story? Is that not what happened in the Garden of Eden? There's a conversation that takes place and someone gets tricked out of their freedom. They, they, they had it all. They had it all and they got deceived into making a, a terrible choice. And we all have done it. We all do it every day, That's you know, true. but but strive to be free in your own life. And, and I'm committed to helping people realize that the votes they cast for themselves every single day to embodying the spirit of freedom, that will go much further than the votes that you do in the voting booth. And, and you get a chance to show up tomorrow and do it again. And, and statistically, you're far more likely to impact the people around you and the people that are not around you by doing that, you know? So when people say, oh, no, 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 TK, like when I vote at the voting booth, that affects everybody. But when it's me going to the gym or me focusing on my diet or me studying or me developing new skills, that's just me. I would say you couldn't be more wrong. It's not just you because yeah. every step that you take towards your calling and towards your purpose, you make it easier for someone else to discover who they are. What if there were people that will never discover? who they are and what they're created for unless you live and remain true to who you are and what you're created for. You know, I, I think it is like, it's a wonderful life where we, we carry ourselves, you know, thinking that our meaning doesn't have much existence and the angel shows him, let me show you what the world looks like. If I took you out of this equation, that friend over there never ends up having that conversation that caused them to go into that career. That friend over there, they never get married to that person. They never have those kids because they never had that one conversation with you. They never got inspired by that thing that you did. Our lives are like that. And um, we can truly make the world free by striving to embody freedom in our own lives and not outsourcing that responsibility to politics. So, you know, the work that I'm doing is, is I'm trying to spread that message. I'm trying to convince as many people as I can that they have the permission right now because they can give it to themselves. They have the power right now to be the predominant creative force in their own lives, no matter how much corruption and evil there is in the world. It's not like in the Hollywood movies. In the Hollywood movies, goodness is this fragile, delicate thing, and one tiny little drop of black ink that is evil can corrupt the whole glass of water. I say it's, in, it's the reverse, that, mm. that goodness is the drop of ink that can corrupt the whole glass of water that is evil. Like, Evil is the thing that is fragile. Evil is the thing that is delicate. And it's so fragile, it's so delicate, it's always aligning itself with a system of coercion and manipulation and deception so that it can artificially prop itself up. But goodness is the thing 
that can always threaten it and can bring that whole thing crumbling down at any time if you align yourself with it. So have faith in goodness, have confidence in goodness, and know that no matter who is elected, no matter who is in office, when you look at the scriptures, the most powerful person is almost always the, the prophet, the cupbearer, the shepherd, the person without the title, the person without the position. You know, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar is in office. It was no, Daniel is in the lion's den and we know where the power is, right? Don't, don't, don't get it twisted where the power comes from. It comes from God and it flows through you. And, and an entire nation can be changed by non-politicians, by people that, that line themselves up with, with the will of God. So anyway, you can find out more about my work at fee.org slash rev1. My project is The Revolution of One. Um, it's a podcast, media content, social media platform as well, where um, you know I, I, I essentially um, evangelize this way of thinking that I'm talking about here. And I, I do a, a variety of seminars, workshops, coaching sessions, and trainings for uh, high school students, college students, uh, you know, teachers, and educate them on how they can empower people uh, at an individual level to be the kind of world changers that I'm talking about. So you can find all my stuff at fee.org slash rev1. Perfect. Perfect, man. Should people follow you on social or are you getting off of that? What are you doing there? Yeah, you can find all my links there. Oh, but perfect. I mean, feeding, you know, yeah. I don't want you good. to have to memorize a bunch. No, no, but that's good. Twitter at TK dot underscore at TK underscore Coleman. Instagram official TK Coleman. Yeah, Facebook yeah. Uh, TK Coleman. Perfect. Dude, I appreciate you making time today. This was a pleasure. This is this is the best interview you've done yet, man. I'm not kidding. This was a really good conversation. Yeah. This was fun, man. I, I appreciate it. We, we got to, I still got to hear, uh, I, I, I know we, we talked a little bit about Jordan Peterson. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts sometimes, but we'll, maybe we get into that on a future episode. Oh, dude, we should. We've got, uh, well, yeah, an interesting and complicated history with uh, that guy in, in a good way, you know? Um, so, yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'd be a lot of fun. We should. Yeah. Awesome stuff. All right. Man. We'll do it another time. I'll catch you later. Yep. Cheers. Right. Later.